Our scripture reading this morning comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 13. Begin reading verses 1 to 16, and then verses 31 to 35. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. And that was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you ought also to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. And then toward the end, toward the end of the chapter in verse 31, when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you, you will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Let us pray together. O oh God, we ask now that your Holy Spirit might give us understanding and life change as we look into your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Anyone who has ever taught children knows the value of a good object lesson. Years ago, our, our family, when our, when our children were young, we participated in a, a family camp um, in North Alabama. A church each summer would have a large camp that lasted for about four or five days. And there were probably 200 children there and and a large number of parents as well. And the speaker, who was a tremendous speaker, I I remember one night, he was going to explain to all the the young people uh, 
some of the doctrines of the Christian life, like justification and sanctification and glorification, not the easiest concepts for children, much less adults, to understand. And the way he explained it was through, like he was preparing a meal. And he took a large uh, bowl, a cooking bowl, and some potatoes. And he had some water, and he had a, a knife, and he had a brush. And he began his, his message by saying, um, justification is like preparing to cook these potatoes. And he took the potato and he washed it. He said, before you cook it, you always wash it and you cleanse it. And he used that to explain how we are made right with God. And then he said, then you prepare the potato uh, to be cooked. And he, he took the knife and he began to, to cut away uh, the skin of the potato. And he said, that's like sanctification, how God takes things out of our life that are contrary to his will and he puts in things that are good. And he went on and on. You, you hear the point. But even decades later now, I, I still remember that lesson because of that visual aid. Jesus, as the master teacher, commonly used visual aids. Uh, he, he mentioned the birds of the air as he's talking about the Father's care for us. He talked about the flowers of the field as far as the way that God provides for us. Uh, he, he talked about healing a blind man after he'd said he was the light of the world. Uh, he said he was the bread of life, and then he, he fed a multitude with a small amount of food. Uh, and yet, I think perhaps he saved the best to last. And it's, it's what we just read here in John chapter 13. It's, this passage takes place on the night before Jesus would be arrested and later crucified, what we call Thursday night. It's the last night Jesus would be with his disciples. Now, the Gospel of John uh, is moving along at a very fast pace up until chapter 12. Uh, the previous 12 chapters of John's Gospel, chapters 1 through 12, cover three years, three years of Jesus' ministry. But then the next six chapters cover one night. So chapter 13 occurs on that that one night, the last night Jesus was with his disciples. And he's going to give a message that's unique to them. This was not a sermon for the multitudes. This is his farewell speech, you might say, his farewell message to those disciples who had been so close to him, that, that circle, that inner circle of his. We look at the Bible and there are often farewell speeches, farewell addresses. We have one by Moses. In Deuteronomy 31, we have one by Joshua. In Joshua chapters 23 and 24, we have the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 20 giving a farewell message. And yet here, John added uh, a significant action section. When Jesus tells about uh, or demonstrates what it means to serve one another. And so this was an object lesson, this washing of their feet they would never forget. Verses 1 to 3 mention what Jesus knew. It said that he knew his hour was coming. It had come. Jesus was on a heavenly timetable. Uh, and these opening verses let us know that Jesus was very aware of that heavenly timetable. Uh, Jesus emphasized the fact that he lived according to this, that he did what was the Father's will. And it developed over time. And in John chapter 2, he says, my hour has not yet come. John chapter 7 says, his hour was not yet come. John chapter 8 
said his hour had not yet come. And then John chapter 12, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. And then here in chapter 13, it begins, Jesus knew that his hour was come. What was this divinely appointed hour that's referenced so many times in the Gospels? It was the time when Jesus would be glorified through his death, burial, and resurrection. That was his hour. So from the human standpoint, it meant suffering, it meant torture, it meant heartbreak. And yet from the divine standpoint, it meant glory. He would soon leave this world and he would go to be with his father. Also, as we read here, he was aware of his love for his own people. And yet he was aware of the work of the devil in at least one of his disciples. And that was Judas. He makes reference to that. So verses 1 to 3 tell us what Jesus knew. Then beginning in verse 4 and verse 5, it tells us what Jesus did. It tells us he got up from the table. He took off his outer robe. He, he wrapped a towel around his waist. He took a basin of water. He poured water in, into that. And he began to wash the feet of his disciples. Now, most of us know that, that foot washing, foot washing at, at that time in that place, that part of the world, was a, a common custom. Due to the uh, uh, wearing of sandals and, and walking, wherever you went, uh, the roads, depending on the season, would be dry and dusty. And a good host, if you were to go in that host home, would provide a servant who would wash your feet. It was, it was almost expected. And it was, it was not something out of the ordinary. But what is unusual about this particular time is not what was done, but who was doing it. The very fact that Jesus, the rabbi, the master, the teacher of the group, is the one who is performing this deed that typically was reserved only for a servant. Now there are a variety of themes present when Jesus does this. We know from what he says here that as he's washing the feet, it is symbolic of spiritual cleansing. We see that from his conversation with Peter. When Peter says that, well, if you're going to do that, wash my, my, my head and, and, and so forth. Uh, Jesus is saying that, Peter, you will not understand all that's taking place uh, until after my death. Uh, so it's spiritual cleansing he was talking about, he was demonstrating. We also know there's a theme here of the of the sinfulness of Judas and the impurities, you might say, of Judas. And so he shifts from Peter and he, he talks about this one who was not clean. He, he was not one of the, the family of God. Uh, he had not been adopted into God's family. But most of all, most of all for our purposes right now, the washing of their, their feet was a symbol, was a visual aid, was a demonstration of the fact that we are to serve one another. Uh, and that we are to do as we've studied, uh, count others as more important than ourselves. Jesus is modeling a behavior for us to emulate. So if service on this order was possible for him, then, then it's possible for you and for me. Let me tell you some things we've been talking about in encouragement over the past three sermons. And today I, I want you to see how encouragers have a right heart. We've studied over the past few weeks that 
that God tells us in the book of Philippians that we're to be of one heart and one mind. We're to view others as more important than ourselves so that we can encourage each other. What is encouragement? Uh, it's an expression that helps another person want to be a better Christian, even when life is tough. And so by washing their feet, Jesus was demonstrating exactly what we would read later from the Apostle Paul. He was demonstrating that humility in considering others is more important than himself. Many Christians have interpreted this that it is an action we are to continue today. So through church history, uh, we have seen that the practice of, of foot washing, literal foot washing, is part of worship and is part of their fellowship by those in the, the Roman Catholic Church, the, the Greek churches, uh, later on, Brethren churches, Mennonite churches, some Baptist churches do that. We, in our understanding from the Reformation, uh, do not necessarily wash feet literally, but we see the symbolic meaning of it. Uh, and that is that we are to serve one another. It's amazing to me that Jesus considered others as more important than himself, even on the eve of his pain and suffering. Uh, he was still thinking of others within a day or so of being crucified. Pain can do a lot to a person. Years ago, our, our church had a, a bookstore here, uh, here at this building. And I was there one afternoon, this many years ago, and I, I picked up a book and it had to do with your family tree and how that affects you today. And as I was looking at the book, I came across something I'd never seen anywhere before or since. Maybe there are many of these out there, but I just did not see them. And kind of out of the blue, the book says, here is a questionnaire to determine if you are a probable candidate to commit adultery. Well, you can see why it caught my attention. Uh, it did not seem to go with the rest of the book. So I thought, I've never seen a questionnaire like this, a candidate for adultery. And so I thought, well, I'll look at some of the questions. And I was fully expecting the initial questions to deal with lifestyle, such as are you, uh, are you using pornography in your life? Are you committing some kind of sinful acts? That's where my mind was. And yet I was so surprised when the first question was, have you suffered a significant loss within the past six months? It took me a while to make the connection. But the connection is when you and I are in pain, emotional pain from a significant loss, physical pain from ongoing uh, circumstances in our, our body, then we look for relief. And we may look for things that are illegitimate to give us relief, like adultery in that case. Uh, it may be an addiction. It, it may be... Uh, uh, spending. It may be using money. It may be anything that we think may give us relief from what we are experiencing. Here's my point. My point is when we are suffering any kind of pain, the normal posture is to turn inward and to say, I've got to take care of myself. Let me give you another example, not quite as substantive as what I just mentioned. My dad died years ago, decades ago. And I, I remember a, a few days after he died and we had the funeral, uh, I was back here in Macon, and a friend of mine, a friend then, a friend now, uh, though he lives in another state, he called me, and he was in ministry. He, he, he was a minister, not, not a pastor, but a minister. 
And he, he quickly acknowledged, he said, Chip, I'm so sorry about your dad. And I said, thank you. And then he said, but the reason I called was, and he immediately went into some debate over what seemed to me at the moment, and I can't remember exactly what it was, a, a trivial matter dealing with some ministry issue. And we got into an argument and I became furious. I became furious, not because we were having a debate, but the timing of it seemed so bad. I was hurting, I was in pain, and I was very self-centered. And I saw my reaction as, as beyond what the stimulus was. Back to Jesus. He's anticipating being crucified. He's anticipating being beaten, dying, and yet he's concerned about others. Encouragers care about other people to encourage them even when they are suffering, even when they are in pain. So we also see that encouragers are willing to take a risk. Sometimes we may choose not to encourage another person, as Jesus was doing with the disciples here, because it, it may be risky. We can say, well, they may misinterpret what I'm going to say. Or if I send this email to this person to encourage them, they may think, what's the angle? Oh, what's, is this person trying to, is he trying to manipulate me in some way? So it, it may be, be risky. Uh, years ago, I, uh, I'm going to sound like I argue with all my friends, but but I, there were, there were, it wasn't the same person I just referred to, but it was another man. We, we, had a, we had agreed to disagree on an issue. And I was working on something in my house, and he drove up, and he brought me a tool. He had heard out what I was working on. He came by, said, here, I got this for you. I thought you might could use it. And, and he'd gone, brand new stories, and he, he left it, and he left it. And, I, and then he drove away. And, and I thought, you know, he, in many ways, is encouraging me by letting me know this issue out here that we disagree on does not define our friendship. Uh, that's encouragement, but it involved risk on, on this person's part, and I'm glad he took it. I'm glad he took the risk uh, for something that could have been perhaps misinterpreted or misunderstood. Sometimes we need to choose uh, to encourage people, even though it's risky. Uh, we may choose the conservative route and live with the note that wasn't sent, the phone call that wasn't made, the kind word that wasn't spoken. Are you willing to take a risk in order to encourage another person? Third, encouragers are willing to love sacrificially. To love sacrificially. I read from the latter part of the chapter, verses 34 and 35 where Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you. Well, what was new about it? It was not new from the standpoint that we can read in the Old Testament where we're told uh, and commanded to love one another. So that part wasn't new. What was new was the fact that Jesus said, I want you to love one another, even as I have loved you. And one of the ways he loved them was to demonstrate this servant attitude by the washing of their feet. Warren Wearsby, who produced many commentaries on, I guess, on every book of the Bible, he, he produced at least one. He said the word love is used 12 times in John chapter 1 to 12. 12 times the word love is used. But in chapters 13 to 21, it's used 44 times. So beginning in this chapter, 
on that, that last night with Jesus and the disciples, he, he mentions love 44 times. So this section here about the, the washing of the disciples' feet, it begins with love, this chapter does, and it ends with love. Because his own love would be the example for his disciples' love for one another. And it's sacrificial, and it is encouraging. I want to end with just reminding you that this type of love, when we look in the Bible, is not given to us in a a neat little three-step technique. Uh, We can walk in a bookstore, we can go on Amazon, and we live in a day of, of techniques, uh, of how to, how to be a gazillionaire, how to flatten your abs, how to have a happy marriage. Uh, and we're interested in technique. But when we come to the New Testament, there's no technique given here. There's only example. And the example of serving one another is through sacrificial love, like Jesus had. We can only do that if we have His love for us by coming to know Christ as our Redeemer, by putting our trust in Him as our Savior, as a forgiver of our sins, of coming to Christ in faith and repentance. He says, when we do that, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. So Jesus is here speaking and modeling an attitude, not a technique. So I close a couple of questions, or a few questions, as we think about encouraging one another. I have to ask myself, and perhaps you can ask yourself, Such questions as, am I focusing on action to show love to others daily? It's even harder now during this quarantine time. Who have I intentionally encouraged over the past week or over the past two weeks? Who should I seek to encourage this week? For whom am I praying regularly? Am I aware of needs they have for which I can pray? Have I responded in a humble fashion to someone seeking to encourage me? Did I pay close attention to their words? And did I take that person seriously? Am I cultivating humility, consciously viewing others as more important than myself? And if so, what difference is that making in my actions? What needs has God revealed to me Lately, and what do I plan to do for those in need? What attitudes and defense mechanisms have I built into my personality which hinder me from encouraging other people or from receiving the encouragement of others? May God take this, the example of Christ, our servant leader, our servant master, our servant redeemer, to stimulate us to more love and good deeds. Let's pray together. Our Father, we're amazed that Christ, even on the eve of his death, would be concerned to encourage his disciples, even the one who would betray him or had betrayed him, and would turn against him. And we ask that you'd help us, especially those of us in pain. We're all, to an extent, just by the nature of this present distress in our nation and in the world, at a low level of pain and, and perplexity and confusion. Uh, help us, though, not to be absorbed in ourselves, but to look to others as more important than ourselves and to think about the needs of others. Enable us, even as a local congregation, as First Presbyterian Church, to encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called today, lest any of us be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. In Jesus' name we pray. 
Amen. And now receive God's benediction. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of His glory, blameless with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen.